you would turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, we're going to continue with a particular series and theme of working our way through with very broad strokes some of the narratives that God is doing in the world, and we are in the midst of a passage that extends from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 11. We'll have our focus mostly there in chapter 4 through 11. I'm not going to read all of those chapters for the sake of time, uh, but if you would focus your attention there in the middle of this particular narrative arc in chapter 6, I'd like to begin reading at verse 1 through verse 12. Now hear the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Our gracious Father, as we contemplate and meditate upon your word, we Admit with what you have informed us that this word is living. And with it we hear the voice of God speaking life to us. And the word of God is like a two-edged sword that cuts asunder between soul and spirit and reveals the very intent of the heart. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would work in the preaching of your word today to to convict us where we need to be convicted, encourage us where we need encouraging, but all of that focused clearly upon the glory of your grace in the face of Jesus Christ. May the Spirit bring forth fruit of righteousness from this body and from us individually, applying the very works of Christ's redemption to our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is a fitting passage for a, a fitting Advent Lord's Day. As we consider Advent, it's looking in the past while also looking forward. We consider the coming of Christ and the promised seed of the woman that was promised all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and 16. And as we see in this time in which we live, a fulfillment of God's faithfulness to His promises, we also, 
have great ability to trust in his continued promise that Christ is coming again. So we are standing in the already and not yet. Already has Christ risen from the grave, but not yet has he come to fulfill the consummation of glory in all things, bringing heaven to earth. We are a part of that narrative arc in which we are a part of his redemptive story, yet awaiting the future hope of that glory. As we consider this narrative arc in this very season of Advent, it is this faith and hope that are these twin truths that come together at play when when Christ came, and that they are true today as well. We have to trust in what God has said, and then hope for His uh, end to come. Today, we live in very difficult days as far as the world events are concerned. But these difficult days are probably uh, that which is given to us in a certain package that we've had it so well in our context for so long, we sometimes realize how difficult our fathers have had it in times past. But the days that we live in around the world and that which we read about on the news and that which we see the tensions growing in our world are the days for which God has designed for you. For the glory of God, He's put you in the narrative today in order to show forth His glory and to bring His truth to bear upon this world who so desperately needs hope in desperate times. To live faithful lives and to trust Christ and to live lives in hope and not in fear. This morning I want to preach to you from this passage in a very broad stroke from Genesis 4 through Genesis 11 on hope and desperate times. As we just make a brief survey through this time, I'm just going to begin in chapter 4 and and begin just doing a very general sweep through that as we go from the, the Cain incident that we looked at last Lord's Day and where that's actually going in Genesis 11. And then we'll see within it the very hope for which we have today. As we remember from last Lord's Day, Cain's posterity followed the way of Cain. That was a phrase that the Scripture itself used. They follow the ways of Cain. And in following the ways of Cain, this first fallenness began to create civilization and all of its cultural endeavors. And the point here is to show that the the serpent's seed, which goes back to the curse in Genesis 3.15 and 16, in the earth will then work through all of the cultural endeavors here in the earth to then influence fallen man to stand against Almighty God in rebellion. Fallen men filled with pride, building building cities and nations and creating after their own image cultural life and artifacts and arts and science and crafts and entertainment and food sources and politics and universities. It's all right there in chapter 4. 
There's nothing new under the sun in that essential principle. And so we see the seed of the serpent began making great cultural endeavors, but endeavors that were standing opposed to God. And there was a very deliberate mindset of the seed of the serpent. Even if he was using men unwittingly, there was a very deliberate purpose and design of the serpent behind it. And in chapter 5, we come to a genealogy. Well, you know genealogies. This one is an important one. But this genealogy kind of sandwiched in this narrative that is going from, from Cain all the way to the Tower of Babel. And this is a genealogy where the hope is found when all the world falls apart. The genealogy of chapter 5 is like a lot of other genealogies in the Scripture. They're not very exciting. They can be long. They can be tedious. They can be difficult to read all those Semitic names. I'm always fearful if Pastor Keith gives me an Old Testament passage reading with names in the Hebrew that I'm going to have to stumble my way through. Genealogies can be, be boring. We often just skip over them, do we not? But there's something very subtle that's going on behind the scenes of all this radical culture building and all of the things that are going on that the, uh, that the world is doing. And yet this pretty plain, uninteresting bit of information is not what the news of the day is reporting. Nothing interesting here. Nothing exciting. Nothing newsworthy on the surface. Just a list of names, really with nothing expounded, nothing explained, no interesting stories or details to share about them. Just, just a list of names. Of the children who were born to Seth that ends with Noah. But in that list of names is the hope for the world. When the world, which is full of frills and excitement and experience and cultural advancements and political zeal and war and violence and all which would be turned into debauchery and ruin, God was working in a quiet and uninteresting way behind the scenes in a most profound way. When the world is, seems to us like it's just falling all apart around us, we need to know that God is at work. Subtly, quietly, sometimes uninterestingly, but He's at work. And he's at work through families. And in the seemingly uninteresting work, in the mundaneness of life, is found hidden the hope for the world. These genealogies connect with what God is doing 
all the way back from the seed of the woman. And that is the promise that then is going to connect us. And all these genealogies are so important to be able to have that thread connected all the way from the seed of the woman all the way to Jesus Christ, who is the light and the hope of this world, who would crush the head of the serpent. And God is faithful. And we look today back on his faithfulness So we should have a greater trust and hope for what he has promised to come. So just an uninteresting chapter, but a most important one. And then we come to chapter 6, and it takes our attention back to what's going on in the world today. We see it going back to now all the, 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 the exciting stuff that the news is reporting on. The cultural building and the endeavoring and all the bad stuff and the wars and, and all of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was absolutely falling apart. I want to expound and just take a little bit of a tangent here because I know it may be on the minds of some. And because in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and following, there's been several different interpretations, and I want to at least provide the one that I believe is accurate here because it continues in the narrative arc from Genesis 3 right on through without skipping a beat. It says, when the men began to multiply on the face of the earth, verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of whom then they chose. And then we see children being born to them, all of which were heading down the path of the ways of Cain. To the place where verse 5 tells us that the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth and every intent of his heart was only evil continually. Now some people would hold that these sons of God were fallen angels, these demons, who then bred with the daughters of men and you have this crossbreed between an angel and a human. And I don't think that's a biblical and correct interpretation, though it is a popular one. And from this crossbreed, these giants came, and, and, and of course this is where the debauchery of the world came, and God just had to destroy all of that. I don't think that is what the Spirit intends for us here. In Matthew 22, Jesus is explaining something about the resurrection, and he's making it clear to the Sadducees and the, who denied the resurrection and the Pharisees who were in attendance there. And he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. From the Scripture that we know and and bringing the more clear passages of Scripture to bear upon the more obscure passage, which I think is before us, angels do not procreate like humans do. There is a fixed number of them. And neither can they in kind then crossbreed with humans because it's not of the same species. In the way that God creates in the world, He created according to kind. And humans were a very special part of creation. It was not an evolutionary process. It was something that God created in the image of himself, breathed into their life, the breath of life, and man became a living being, created in the image of God for this earthly dwelling to show forth the glory of God here and to take dominion here. Now, I don't think that what we have is a crossbreed. I don't think angels even breed themselves. I don't think they can crossbreed with humans. I don't think we have a hybrid kind of being here. 
I think what we have is just the very narrative of where the sons of God, and by the way, the reason some people would believe that because the term sons of God is used in Job of angelic beings as they come and kind of give an account before God. And they take that phrase and insert it back into here. But sons of God are also used in other passages that reflect, reflect upon those who are of the seed of the woman, those who are God's elect, those who are in God's fold. And as they then marry the daughters of men, I believe this is an unequally yoking between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, all of which are humans. But this is the, the very pollution in which those who follow after God often then lose the faith in the next generation or even in their own. And this has been a historic problem with the nation of Israel all the way through. In fact, if we just turn our attention back to chapter 4, verse 26, we see how this chapter ends. And as for Seth, to him also the son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And there the seed of the woman is clearly seen to us as begetting this particular train of, of continuance by the faithfulness of God. While it's going behind the scenes and quite quietly and subtly, and we see that uh, extended in the genealogy. But when we come to Genesis 6, we see then the enemy has sown his seed among the field of the righteous. And through this cross-pollination of the worldly with the godly, then we end up with people not following the ways of the Lord. This is exactly the reason we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is exactly the problem that Solomon had when he took many wives for himself, and his wives turned his heart away from the Lord to their pagan gods. And this is what's going on here. It's a ploy in which the serpent has used throughout all of history. He continues to do so today, and we need to be very careful to make sure that our children never become unequally yoked. So the very point of this passage then, getting beyond that little explanation, is showing us really how bad our depravity is. It is showing us how bad we really are when God begins to limit His restraining grace upon this world. And that, I think, is the point. I think that's the picture. When God begins to limit His restraining grace, mankind begins to self-destruct by His own sinful debauchery and His sinfulness. It is showing in this passage a glimpse of truly the depths of our depravity and how bad we really are. And that does not take demonic, spiritual external, outside influence, it is showing us the depths of the depravity of our own hearts. It says in verse 5 that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great and that the every intent of his heart was only evil continually. It's the heart which is worked. Our greatest enemy is our own heart. And as God begins to show us in this picture what happens to society 
when God begins to withhold His limiting grace from it, there's a lesson for us here to find ourselves in that society, in that crowd, to to realize that if it were not for God's intervening grace in your life, you would self-destruct. Your own sin would eat you up and kill you. We see this in various pictures today of even the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. And they self-destruct oftentimes. And we can see it. The lesson of the flood is a good lesson for us because we always look at ourselves and we evaluate ourselves always better than what we truly are. This is the state of things when God limits His grace. And the application of which today we all need to be in tune with is that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. My friends, you and I do not know the depths or the power of our own fallen, depraved nature into which we were born into this world with. We don't understand it. The more we begin to understand it, the more we appreciate God's abounding grace that abound over it all. For where our sins have abounded, God's grace has much more abounded. And the more you realize that, the more praise to the glory of that grace you will give. But to get there, you're going to have to realize more of the own sinfulness and the depravity and the deception and the debauchery and all of the problems of your own sinful human heart. We are a proud people. We are self-confident by nature. We are self-assured in our old Adam selves. And yet, if God begins to resist the proud, if we rise up in our own spirit, and He begins to restrain His grace in our lives, and allow us to find out the hard way just how sinful our deceptive hearts are, and know that our proud hearts deceive us. That's Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? I don't know it. The Apostle Paul says, I don't even judge myself. But when God begins to dial back His grace, and yes, I believe there are degrees of grace in which God can continue to give more and more grace, or I think He can dial that back. And when He begins dialing it back, our lives will begin falling apart. To the place that you will come once again to cry out to God for His mercy and humility and beat your chest. Say, have mercy upon me, O God. I am unworthy. Be thankful that God has given us far more grace than we deserve. And that His grace has abounded beyond what our sin Far more than we ever know, but be warned, stay humble. 
or he may dial it back for your chastening. The picture we have of the depravity of mankind in Genesis 6, we have never seen the world like that. We have never seen the world with that level of corruption. I don't care what you think is going on out in the world today. I don't think what you think about World War II or what World War III is going to look like. You have never seen the world like that. And that is the point he wants you to understand. And it comes from the heart of man. It comes from the inside out. This is the work of the seed of the serpent. Yet when the world was at its worst, God wanted us to know that there is hope. Even in the worst of times, God was at work. And verse 8 in chapter 6 says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah's an illustration here. He's a symbol. Now we need to understand that Noah didn't stand himself out before God to cause God to notice him. That is not what the scripture means here. It means that Noah was just like everybody else, and by the grace of God, God chose him out from among the whole lot and gave grace to him and favored him and his family. That's what that means. Noah here was a conduit of which God was going to graciously use to bring forth that seed of the woman, not in his own generation, but through that lineage, that seed, that spiritual genealogy. And in Noah, God reveals to us a figure in a figure form, a symbol of a new creation. Noah was a new Adam figure, and from this one man was the answer for all of the mess in the world, and that was the promised seed. Now, in the worst of times, in desperate times, times like our own, the answer is still the same as it was back then. Christ. Christ. Because the issue is the one of the heart. And only Christ can change that. Jesus is our only hope, so trust Him. And while all this world was going down the tubes, if you will, God was at work quietly, subtly, behind the scenes, through families with whom he has found favor. And it's through families like ours who've trusted in the seed of the promise that God works in a supernatural way in the world. Women, let me encourage you. Your motherly duties and responsibilities is a great responsibility. At times it's going to seem mundane, monotonous, subtle, not any frills, or at least the kind of frills that you would like. Cleaning up messes, disciplining children, cleaning up after them and preparing their meals and doing their dirty laundry and trying to train them, and yet that is how God grows His kingdom. The hope we have for the future in the kingdom of God is through our children and Christ working in them in this world. Do not neglect your motherly duty. Do not belittle that or sell yourself short, but take it up and make sure you're not just raising your children for your enjoyment, 
you are raising soldiers who must stand in the seed of the, of the woman faithfully, not just because they bear a baptism with his name, but because they truly embrace the essence of that baptism to be used as a warrior for Jesus Christ here upon this world. That is the narrative of the hope that lies within you, right? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So while the war going on is spiritual, there's a way that is working its way out in this world through humans. And God, through a collaboration with His people, is working to restore this fallen world. And that's the story that we have before us. The flood in Genesis 6 through 9 was God's judgment. God's judgment on human sinfulness. God's judgment on all of the earth because of man's pollution. And yet God favors Noah and his family and prepares a way through a collaborative effort that he, in, he graces Noah with. This plan of saving Noah through the judgment waters that he would send through an ark pointing to Christ himself. Being baptized through the waters of God's judgment, bearing us in his breast as he goes, we have salvation in Christ who took the judgment of God in our behalf. And so all of the recreation is going on in the world and the world is going about its way. Here we are in the ark. Being saved by the grace of God and populating the world with a godly seed. And while Noah was a bearer of the promise, he also was a carrier of the very problem. We see this not long after Noah gets off of the ark in the incident of the uncovering of his nakedness by Ham. If you would then turn over with me to Genesis chapter 9, and let's just look at that uh, briefly here. In Genesis chapter 9, they get off the ark, Noah plants a vineyard, he drinks of the wine, he gets drunk, he goes into his tent, and it says in verse 20, and Noah began to be a farmer. He planted a vineyard. And then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Again, that nakedness is going to go back to Genesis 3, Ark, and showing how God had to cover the shame of man's sinfulness with these animal skins, and that was being uncovered in this way that was displeasing to God. Now the lineage of the seeds here is important for us to know is not by genealogical succession, but by faith. That does not, however, minimize biblical genealogies or circumcision or baptism. The problem becomes when one only looks toward the outward genealogy or the outward circumcision or that outward baptism and does not embrace the very essence of that baptism in your heart. The genealogical difference between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is one of the heart. It is one of faith. It is one of Christ, who is the object of the faith. 
And so we have this episode between Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And Ham was one that was brought through the ark, but in him was that seed that was of the serpent. He was not right with the Lord. And now the curse comes. And we all see, we we can see this curse almost echoing that of Genesis chapter 3 and some similarities to it. And we see down in verse 25, cursed be Cain, which is Ham. It was the descendants of Ham. It's interesting here that when he blesses Shem and Japheth, he curses the descendants of Ham. And I think that's where we see the seed again. And we see up in the passage just before this that Canaan was the son of Ham. And so we have this lineage the spiritual lineage who would, goes after the ways of Cain. Now, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. Now, with the curse, as it was in Genesis 3, we have God's blessing. I want you to see this. And he says, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. We see a dominion thing going on there. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Now from Ham we see this seed of the serpent was then once again energized upon this earth. Yet we see in this a continuing development of God's plan in the redemptive revelation. Let me back up and just give us a couple of data points. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the curse of the the serpent. And in that curse, it says that the seed of the woman, he will crush the head of the serpent. We have two data points of that seed in Genesis 3.15. One, it will be a child of the woman that would come. And secondly, it would be a male child by the use of of, of the pronoun he. The woman would bear a seed and he will crush. So what we have is a male child that is promised as being the seed. We have one more advancement here, which I think is a significant advancement in this, because it has to do with the pronoun again in verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. Who is the he referring to? Is it Japheth is going to dwell in the tents of Shem or or is it God himself? And I think that's the interpretation. You could take it the other way as well. Both work. But I think here's an advancement of the revelation that not only is it going to be a male child that's going to come from the seed of the woman, but it will be God himself that will come. And by this time in the early part of Scripture, we have the male child is also going to be God himself. And we have God in human flesh. And there is the mystery of godliness that God manifested himself in the flesh. And there is Advent for us. All the way back to Genesis chapter 9. God would dwell in the tents of Shem. Shem is the lineage from which Christ would come. God himself there would be. Now as we come into the following chapter, again we're going to see the focus given 
on these genealogies and these, these people that rise, we call Genesis 10 the table of nations, because from it we're beginning to see the nations and the kingdoms that are divided out. But what we see is a focus and a more exposition on the lineage of Ham. And that's kind of the focus of this passage between Genesis 4 through 11, the development of the seed of the serpent. This is going to culminate in the next chapter, chapter 11, at the Tower of Babel. Babel was a city that was built by Nimrod, who was the descendant of Ham. And those are the ones who went after the way of Cain. This is a moving away from God, but moving against God. And we see this expressed in the Tower of Babel. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day understood Babel as Babylon. They understood the two as being the same. It is the empire that stood against God's favored people and against God himself by extension. Now, God has created us in this world to be creators like him, to be makers And there's something about our humanity in which God has divinely designed into us that likes to build community, that likes to colonize place, that looks after the land, that finds rootedness. And God created it this way. I think Cain even knew this in his own bones that we see in his reaction to his punishment. But the trouble in all of this is our fallenness, our sin, our pride, that which stands against the glory of God. And so that which was originally intended by God for spreading His glory throughout all of the world is now used by man against God for man's own glory. That's what we see at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is then the culmination, if you will, or maybe a a high point in this particular segment of the passage that shows the progression of the seed of the serpent in this world and in the world system and the building of kingdoms and building of culture and all of these things. We're going to see this in a high mark here. And Genesis 11.4 tells us even the worldview that's behind their activity. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Now that's what's going on today with nations and kingdom building and worldly entertainment and politics and Let us make a name for ourselves. Human pride is, I don't want to run this world world God's way, but I want to do it my way. And it results in a symbol here, the Tower of Babel, of human arrogance, human idolatry. That's what the Tower of Babel is. The exile from the garden in Genesis 3 results in the Tower of Babel. And then God comes down and 
distributes them, disperses them. There's exile. There's a theme of exile. This is the pattern we're going to see played out again in the narratives of Scripture. It's a pattern that we see in the history of the church even that is played out. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And we want to make a name for ourselves, whether it be the church or whether it be an institution or a university or school or a person. God resists that. He comes down. He'll disperse that. And there have been times when the entire institution of the church has been in a spiritual exile. And thankfully, the old pattern that God is faithful to His promises continues all down through history. It'll continue right through your life and mine to our children. God is faithful. There's always hope in the midst of this fallen world. Now, God resists the proud. Our culture endeavors, the cultural artifacts that we build will have a lasting effect and influence in this world if they are done for the glory of God and not for ourselves. And after all this sinful cultural endeavor, even after the flood that God destroys it all, the hardness of the human heart did not change. And there's not been any exceptions to that ever since the flood. Yet in the drama of Babel, we once again have a genealogy. You know, there's an interesting list of names where man is at his height of arrogance once again. And then... God reveals he's still at work. He's still at work. Quietly, through families, through your children, with whom he has a plan. We should not think of Noah or Abram or any different from any of the other pagans of their day. What set them apart is the grace of God. God singled them out. He gave them favor. And that is the fundamental principle for us. This, what we have picked up after Babel is now we pick it up from Shem to a man named Abram. And that's where we're going to see some major developments in the seed of the woman. Oh, it's been there. It's been hundreds of years subtly working behind the scenes and all the information we have, just a little little connecting points to a genealogy, but God was at work. And once again, in the midst of all this human debauchery and depravity and culture building and worldly influence, there is hope. And with God, there's always hope because God is always at work in this world. He is always at work in this world. It's true today. So when all seems lost, when the times and the situations are desperate, that is the time to know that God is at work and He's at work through you, in you, and in your children. 
He loves this world. He's never given up on this world. Even when He's limited His grace and we see the depravity of man expanding to such a state as it was that He destroys all of it except for eight souls and a number of animals. And then He repopulates it. And He has never done that since. He loves this world. And even then He is showing how much He loves this world. Oh, not because we deserve it, but because we are the object of His favor. For His name's sake, He loves us. And He is still at work. He's still at work here on this earth as He always has been, working through families. Subtly. Quiet. Oftentimes behind the scenes. Yet God's work is more powerful than all of the drama and excitement that the world extends through its news to our eyes today. Through all the experiential phenomenon, through all of the dramatic things that are going on, the quiet, subtle ways of God are far more powerful and will bring a world change the likes of which the serpent cannot thwart. And God always wants you to trust Him. He wants you to give your life to whatever the cause is that He has planned for you in this endeavor. Whether it is to build an ark or come alongside your dad to help you build it. Have faith in Him and never lose hope. The truths and the principles are true for God's corporate people who are faithful, but it is also applicable to each one of us as individuals. No matter what you're going through, no matter how bad life gets, in Christ there is hope. When Paul says that Christ is the hope of glory, or the hope of glory is Christ in you, I think he's speaking about a corporate sense. Christ in his people, in his body, is the hope of glory that is to come. But even as it is As a corporate body, there is a truth for us individually. A trial with a tyrannical government facing injustices and potential sentencing, there's hope. Or an unknown foreign mass growing in your body, there is hope. Or living in constant pain, not knowing what tomorrow will bring or whatever your faculties may be, there is hope. Or living in a difficult relationship where restoration seems impossible, there is hope. Don't lose hope. Trust in God. And it is Christ that came. It is Christ that is our object of our faith. He is the purpose for our hope. God is at work in all the little details in our lives, way behind the scenes, oftentimes quietly and subtly, but He is always at work and there is always This is not a a hoping like the world hopes for, like a potential, like it might not come about. But by the word of God, it is certain it will come about according to his truth in your life as you trust him and give your life to him. He loves you dearly. He's already demonstrated that a number of times in your life 
well over the times that you can count. He is faithful, and he will finish the work that he began in you. That's the story of Advent. That's the week of hope and faith. Against all odds, against all human odds, and that's the way God likes to do it. God sent forth his son into the world, the seed of the woman in the fullness of time, born under the law, born under the woman, to establish his kingdom here upon the earth in the midst of impossible times. And as people here upon the earth have participated in that godly advancement ever since. And the world is better because of it. Be encouraged in these desperate times. Trust in Christ because there is hope. He is at work. Our gracious Father, we pray that you would encourage us in this dark passage of Scripture where we see the depravity of man coming to a full expression and you destroyed all of them except for eight. Where again they were energized to places where building cities and a tower that they could make a name for themselves. Standing against their very creator in rebellion of their heart. And yet you acted. And then there is this lineage of the seed of the woman who is our hope. We thank you for the work of redemption in our lives. We thank you for choosing us out of that sinful world, not because of something worthy in ourselves, but for some reason only known to yourself. You looked upon us with favor and loved us and chose us in Christ, even before the foundation of the world, that we might be recipients of your grace and be used as instruments in your hand in this fallen world, to show them the light of the glory of the gospel, to show them the glory of God, to show that it is your name that is above every name, and no name can equal or even come close. Lord, there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved except this seed, Christ Jesus. It is him we proclaim. It is in him we trust. He is our hope of glory. So take today and apply this message to those who may be discouraged, overcome with fears or concerns of the worldly endeavors. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage us knowing that you're at work in quiet and subtle ways behind the scenes that will turn the world upside down to show forth your glory in impossible circumstances, for that is the way you like to demonstrate your love. We thank you, we praise you, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' living name, amen.